Let's talk oral surgery, guys. This is episode two. Is the medical degree within reach for oral and maxillofacial surgeons? We have Dr. Mark Engelstad. He's joining us to explain whether the medical degree is relevant to the modern day OMS. He'll talk about a little bit on the benefits of having a medical degree. A lot of this is personal anecdote, it seems like. And the challenges ahead of keeping the medical degree as an option for residency programs, as the requirements for licensure is changing in many states. I'm sure many of you have heard about the ACGME uh, credits you need in general surgery for MD licensure. If you haven't, we'll talk about that a bit on the podcast. Dr. Engelstad is the current program director at the Oregon Health and Science University, uh, which is my program. He's had various other faculty appointments prior to this, and it seems like two years ago, he became the founder and CEO of his own startup called Entrustable. Uh, It's an experienced logging application for health education learners. He got his DDS from the University of Minnesota, MD and OMS from the University of Louisville. He completed a fellowship in Switzerland in cranial maxillofacial surgery, where he did a large volume of orthognathic and trauma surgery. He didn't stop there, though. He got a master's in health informatics and did a fellowship in biomedical informatics through the National Library of Medicine, NIDCR. I want to do this episode because we just finished residency interviews at my program, and Dr. Engelstad gives a brief lecture prior to the interviews on assessing residency programs, what to look for as you navigate uh, OMS programs, and It seems like every year, I mean, even for myself, when I interviewed here, every year applicants express that I wish I had this lecture before I applied to oral surgery. Or they say, I wish I had this lecture sometime during early, sometime during the early years of dental school. Anyway, this was an exciting talk with Dr. Engelstad. I learned a bunch and I hope you do as well. Without further ado, let's get on with the show. All views expressed on the show and the following episodes belong to the host or the guest and do not represent the opinions of any entity. Hi, Dr. Engelstad. Thanks for being on the show. You know, I, I reached out to you not too long ago to talk about this topic. I think it's been pretty relevant to our field. I'll just quickly introduce you. I mean, you did your training in Louisville, uh, your almost residency. You did your fellowship in Switzerland. You went all over the country, and now you ended up at OHSU as a program director for about a decade or so. That's right. I've been here for about 10 years. And now you are starting uh, your own startup uh, called Entrustable for about two years now. Do you want to just kind of quickly explain what that is? Um, yeah. Entrustable is a, uh, a software as a service that runs on a, a special piece of um, computerized knowledge called a knowledge graph. So I'm trying to teach a computer what I know about surgery and dentistry and medicine. Um, because once it knows that, um, I can take advantage of computational speed to solve problems. So I'm trying to teach a computer what I know so it can use all of the data that we have floating around the world to answer questions. It's amazing how you have had such extensive surgical training and now you're branching out to more computer science informatics uh, in our field. And I think it's something that a lot of young surgeons or dentists are trying to do. I mean, even myself, I have some interest in startups. 
Um, and you, you have been kind of my mentor in that, I think, since my externships here. Yeah, I um, certainly never saw myself ever doing this a few years ago. If you had told me I'd be doing that, I'd say, oh, you must have the wrong person. <laughs> That's not me. But um, I did a, uh, I took a little half-time hiatus from surgery about five or six years ago and did an NIH postdoc in this field called ontology development, which is kind of a uh, obscure field, but it's basically a place where people try to teach computers knowledge um, and they create these taxonomies or hierarchies of knowledge that machines can use to understand the world, understand the relationships between concepts in the world. And um, obviously, you know, this stuff is just becoming more and more important. Um, AI is you know, it's it's quaint to say AI is going to, I don't like the word, I don't like the term AI, preferred machine intelligence, but it's quaint to say it's changing the world, but it's also an understatement. It's going to change everything. And um, as surgeons, one thing I've you've gathered about surgery over my career is that surgery is an extremely traditional place. It's not as traditional as like, you know, the church, but it's pretty traditional. And uh, I once heard this venture capitalist say a few years ago that the two sectors of the economy that change the slowest are healthcare and education. And uh, the, the, those are the two that are the most resistant to change. And I always laugh when I hear that because that's exactly where I sit, you know, at the interface of healthcare and education. And um, I, I think it's true. We, um, we're really bound by rigid um, accreditation standards and it's hard to change it's very hard to change surgery. Um, it's just an enormous galactic battleship that's moving with momentum in one direction, and it's very difficult to change. So, um, you know, people put a lot of importance on how they trained, and they they say, "Well, if I trained that way, it must be, and I'm me, then it must be necessary in order to become someone like me. You must have to recapitulate my training, which probably isn't true." probably lots of ways to um, come to surgical excellence, but it's hard to change the formula. So, Yeah, I mean, it seems like the technology that's introducing different types of education to our field hopefully will accelerate some of this training that we have to go through. I know that some guys, there was this one resident, I think, was starting a, um, a virtual training module where you can use 3D goggles to do surgeries. And yeah that would take away the need for someone to be in the OR all the time mm -hmm. to see their first manual fracture. Mm -hmm. And so I can see that technology is changing, you know, education and also surgery, but don't you think it's also an overstatement to say that AI is changing everything? Yeah. And that's, you know, AI, like I said, I don't even think, I don't, I think most, uh, realist computer scientists would say AI probably, you know, machines that actually have a human kind of intelligence won't be a reality probably for about 500 years. I, I heard one person say that it'll be a hundred Nobel, we're, we're about a hundred Nobel prizes away from that. Mm. Um, and we confuse technology with AI. And I, I even hear people, you know, what they have is like a, a spreadsheet and, you know, they say <laughs> that they have an AI powered website or something like that. So, it's a buzzword, but, you know, things like virtual reality are, so I'll just back up and say when I, I've been, um, as I craft my own product, I think a lot about, I'm, I'm very intrigued by what it takes to become any kind of profession. And since I'm in surgery, I'll just use surgery as an example. But 
what does it take to to make you know a surgeon and we tend to think about that in almost religious terms you know again i think there's a lot of analogies between you know surgeons and priests you know we we wear you know the vestments and the white cloaks and we get certified by our um you know board which is analogous you know to going to our our divinity school and you know getting our certification and and then once we enter a field we're sort of ordained to enter it and we stay in it and but um but what does it take to get there and and really what a surgeon is 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 a guide and what you're doing is saying simply i've seen things happen in the past these things that i've seen in the past have allowed me to develop a solid internal model of the world my internal model of the world as a surgeon is particularly good around you know diseases of the mechanical workings of the human body uh, but um i have a good internal model of the world which allows me to become a good predictor of what to do for your problem so education allows you to identify a problem and that sounds easy it's like i can see a disease but identifying things is oftentimes tricky knowing what the nature of that problem is that you're seeing understanding how it behaves if you do something about it and understanding how that problem behaves if you do nothing about it mm-hmm. right um so the guide that we are um has experiences those experiences each every each and every one of them changes uh and modifies your internal model of the world and we use that internal model of the world to make decisions and predictions for our patients we're literally predicting what we think will work well for the kind of problem that they have we're predicting which solutions will work given the unique set of problems that they have and the unique kind of person that they are and um the expert <clears throat> can do that almost you know reflexively but that doesn't come from nowhere right the only way you can have a solid internal model of the world because your brain lives inside of a you know a, a dark quiet bony cavity you know the brain can't possibly know what's going on out there without senses without sense information coming in you know that come in through raw electronic signals and the brain somehow magically has to use those to create a model of the world and i think we have this idea that as surgeons we just get it right we're naturally gifted and we can just do things and certainly there are people who are have a quality called aptitude where whatever it was in their in their current psychological makeup or in their maybe in their past jobs or in their personal history they quickly grasp the concepts and relationships between concepts in surgery they they naturally seem to get them for whatever reason and they need fewer experiences to develop a solid internal model of the world right a solid model of how the world works mm-hmm. so there are people who need fewer experiences to develop a solid model and there are people who need more experiences but the human brain when it comes to surgery in any other field is just like training a human to be a surgeon is just like training a deep neural net to recognize you know to drive a car or recognize dogs in a photo you know, for instance so if you wanted to do that you would grab a whole bunch of photos you would label them dog or not dog and you would feed it to the to the deep learning system and eventually 
it would be able to, with great accuracy, recognize dog or not dog in a photo or make a decision as to whether or not, you know, something that the car is seeing is a, is a tumbleweed or a child on a bicycle, mm -hmm. right? And w surgical learners are the same. I mean, we, we, we require a labeled set of inputs. This is an ameloblastoma. This is an odontogenic cyst. This is an angle fracture. This is what a non-union looks like. This is labeled input that we get, right? And we're just, we're just like a deep learning system. And there's no way we can learn about the world without having experiences. So to get back to virtual reality, what that can do is it can give you, um, it, can, it can't replace real world experience, but it can prime your brain uh, with a better understanding of relationships between concepts so that you're more quickly able to make progress in the real world and you need maybe fewer real world experiences in order to, to develop competency. Um, and that would be the goal to use VR for something that didn't replace experiences, but allowed us to um, reduce the numbers of experiences required to develop this magical thing called know-how, this magical thing we call competency, uh, so that we can minimize the duration of surgical training um, and get people out there helping people faster. That would be ideal, right? I mean, if we could tr you know, train a surgeon in three weeks, I mean, that's absurd, of course, but I mean, wouldn't we if we could, right? If you could, why wouldn't you, right? If you had a system that was so good that you could do that, mm. um, then why would it? Why would you want it to take nine years? You know, of course, that's a fantasy. But um, you know, there is, uh, if we can get the same competency with with uh, less time and training, then that leaves more a, a longer duration of the human lifespan to help people. Um, and of course, in training, we help people too. But um, you know, that's a nice segue into today's topic. Because um, I know the way you structure the program here at OHSU was so that your residents can have repeated exposure as much as they can during their six years here to develop that kind of competency by the end of the sixth year. And so in 2017, you wrote a, a paper titled, um, Is the MD Still Within Reach to OMS? And basically this article was talking about whether, you know, medical license... Um, credentialing in different states will allow OMS programs to keep up and still allow their surgeons to have these competent graduates. And so could you just kind of define what the problem is you see with the medical degree? Yeah, it's, um, we, um, we've gotten ourselves in OMS into a little bit of a bind because, um, we are the only you know, and I'm just talking about the set of surgical training programs that are double degree, but we're the only surgical field that has gone and required its members to, to get two professional degrees. And this is costly. And, um, on a number of levels, it's costly as far as opportunity cost, meaning that, you know, you could be doing something else with your time. It's costly in the fact that the human lifespan is limited. And the years that you're in medical school are particularly productive years of the human life, you know, late twenties, early thirties. This is when people can just work and they can work yeah, incredible I mean, hours. I mean, right? I have all this energy like exactly. running through me, but I'm just sitting in lecture all day. Yeah. So using it to, to, to get a second professional degree when, you know, uh, the, the, the payoff of that second degree isn't 
as clear as the payoff of the first degree. So clearly the first professional degree, you know, if you're an otolaryngologist, your first professional degree is, you know, your medical degree. Clearly that's required to do your craft. And Mm -hmm. clearly the dental degree is required to become an oral and maxillofacial surgeon. Um, What's less certain is how much the second professional degree um, requires or is uh, is beneficial um, from a risk-benefit standpoint or from a cost-benefit standpoint. So um, it's this is a debate that'll never be solved. There's no right answer to it. Um, what I wanted to do by writing this was shed a little bit of light on, I was particularly concerned with the changes that are coming in medical licensure. And what I've noticed is that when learners are... Con- when young people are making the decision about whether to go to a double or single degree program, a large number of them are naive to this question. Um, I remember I certainly was. I just thought, well, if I get a medical degree, I'll be a physician. And I mean, that's it. And that'll be great. I want to be a physician. And I didn't you know, really know what I was going to do with my career. And honestly, I think it's hard to know what you're going to do with your career. And even if I had known at that time what I was going to do, I probably would have been wrong. I probably would have changed it. So, you know, we're all flying blind at that age. We don't know what the future is going to bring us, but we have to make this weighty decision. But at that time, it wasn't as risky because you could get a medical license with only one year of ACGME training. So I should explain one of the things that when I give, when I, when I talk about this with people is I make clear the difference between a medical degree, which is a credential, which is an academic credential given by a university or a school or an educational organization. Mm -hmm. So if you have an MD, that's great. You have an academic degree, but you cannot treat patients. You can't practice medicine. And we know this, it's just like the dental degree. When you finish dental, dental school, you can't practice dentistry without a dental license from a state. And in the United States, licenses, licenses fall under, uh, you know, those are, those are uh, states' rights issues. And each state gives licenses to its licensed fields, mm-hmm. medicine, dentistry, um, being a, a, a licensed builder, uh, being a, a hairstylist or a barber, you know, nail salon, these all require licenses. So you can't practice, you can't, you can't advertise yourself to the public as a physician unless you have, in addition to a medical degree, a medical license. So medical licenses are dispensed by medical boards and each state has their own board. The requirements that the board looks at in order to give somebody a medical license differ between states. All of them are based on how many years of ACGME training that you have. I think that stands for the Accreditation Council on Graduate Medical Education. And this is the accrediting body that accredits medical residencies of every kind. So, you know, how many, there's probably a hundred when you look at different residencies and different fellowships, but ACGME accredits all medical training. As OMS residents, after we get our medical degree, we often do a period of general surgery. This is for two reasons. One, to get general surgery training, which is necessary to become a surgeon. All surgeons do some form, some duration of general surgery training. But just as importantly, it's the only place that oral and maxillofacial surgery residents get this 
much needed ACGME accredited training mm-hmm. that they will need for licensure. So as these states start changing their requirements, the requirements are going up. So it, when I was a resident, all states really only were, almost every state required one year of ACGME training. Well, that was a no brainer because I knew I was going to do a year of general surgery. So no problem. Mm-hmm. I'm going to have no problem. I'll do my year of general surgery. That'll be my ACGME year. I'll have one year of ACGME. I'll be able to get a license in any state. Well, now fast forward uh, you know, 15 years, man, 15 or 20 years. <laughs> you just something like yourself, that. Dr. Yeah. Fast forward. I mean, it's not much time, right? I mean, I'm still solidly in my career and the landscape of, of this has changed a lot. So now there's a lot of states, uh, I can't remember exactly, but, you know, 15 uh, and increasing maybe, you know, up to 20 that require either two or three years mm-hmm. of ACGME training. So this forces OMS programs to keep you in general surgery longer. This is a problem because for every month I have to send you to general surgery, that is a month that I can't train you in oral and maxillofacial surgery. And that's what you need to be trained in. So um, I can see the reason I wrote that editorial is I can see on the horizon that the profession of medicine is like a slowly moving boat. Mm-hmm. You know, it was a boat that we were in harbor with, you know, when I trained, we were like two boats in a harbor side by side. And there was a plank between our boats and you could walk across from dentistry to medicine without too much risk and uh, of getting wet and without too much danger and not without too much time. Well, the, the boat of medicine of being a physician is slowly drifting away from the boat of dentistry. Mm-hmm. And the reason it's drifting is that it's costing more and more time. Uh, of medical training in order to get the credentials, both the degree and the ACGME years required to be a physician. This places stresses on programs that have a fixed duration, 72 months for a six-month pro- or six-year program. Um, and, you know, that's a finite number of months. And in those 72 months, you have to fit medicine and become a physician. And you have to then, you know, do your general surgery training. And we're really already as a program director, I said, geez, I'm already having a hard time getting enough months of OMS. And I can see the future that if we do nothing, that boat of medicine is going to start to drift where it's out of reach. And what I don't want to see is a whole generation of young people getting a degree that is a second class or getting becoming second class physicians, physicians with limited training uh, that put them at risk of being unlicensable in many states in our country. Mm-hmm. I don't think that it's right for us to to do that. I don't think we, and if somebody wants to do that, that's great. I wanted to be a physician. And honestly, if I had to do it all over again, I think I'd still do it just given my own personal uh, philosophy and psychology. But if we're going to do that, we have to make these young folks We have to make sure they understand what it is they're paying for two years of their life with Mm -hmm. or what they're getting and what the landscape looks like in the future. And we have to make sure we, that they understand the looming clouds that could make licensure in many States a challenge for them. In regards to that, I mean, so before we get to the benefits of the medical degree and the costs associated Something that I've noticed here at our program compared to other programs that also offer a two-year ACGME credit 
we're able to cut a deal with the general surgery department to say, hey, nine months of general surgery can equal one year of ACGME. And I guess it could be argued that why can't programs just do that? Why can't they just keep cutting deals with general surgery departments to reduce the actual number of months, but still get the two years of credit? Yeah, you you can. It's uh that that's that's the term that I'm that I'm uh, a little wary of is the the cutting of the deal in that it deals like that can be changed very quickly and put us in peril. And instead, I would like us to be more you know masters of our own domain. Not I don't want like as a program director knowing that if you know some ACGME rule changes in some committee. Uh, you know, th- that had a rule change in some subcommittee in Chicago eight months ago, makes it impossible for that general surgery program director to allow my residents, our residents to get general surgery credit. And that could instantly change our program overnight and decimate it. Mm-hmm. Right. So when we cut deals, we make ourselves, we put ourselves at risk of having everything about our program instantly change overnight in ways that are catastrophic. And this kind of happened already to us. So, uh, and it's happened some other places, you know, where, you know, I remember when I first got here, you know, we had this uh, wonderful general surgery program director and um, she was extremely friendly towards our, our program as you know, why, why wouldn't you be? Um, And, uh, and she, you know, every time one of our graduates wanted to get a medical license in a two-year state, they would, they would, um, you know, ask for a verification of training and our general surgery department would happily say that, oh yes, this resident had two years of ACGME. And that was nice. Even though on paper that student had one? Even though it wasn't really officially documented as one any, anywhere, but if anybody audited the department and said, show me the months where this learner uh, was rotating, uh, where they got these two years. Show me, show me the, show me the months that they spent in a, in a rotation that was accredited by ACGME. We wouldn't have been able to do that. Mm. Right. So that was great that a program director was able to, to help us out. And there's programs like that all over the country. Uh, but then that person retired and we got a new person Mm. who was equally as wonderful but who had a slightly different philosophy and said, you know, Mark, I just, I can't, I can't sign off on two full years with the current level of general surgery training that you're doing. I just, Mm -hmm. I think your residents are wonderful. I agree that they're solidly trained. I look at the kind of work that they're doing and I fully agree that it's up to our standards. However, I can't sign off on this because it's technically not true. Mm -hmm. And of course, that program director is right. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't sign off on that either. Yeah. Right. And so I found myself in a fix. Um, and I thought, man, I can see it. You know, California was going to three years. Washington already required two years. Nevada was three. And here we are in Oregon where, you know, you only still only need one year. But I could see that all around us, the marketplace for our graduates to, to use their hard-earned credential was disappearing. And so um, we had to sort of come to a new solid arrangement 
that required us to do more training in general surgery mm-hmm. at different levels. Because remember, if you want to do a second year of general surgery, that can't just be added months. That means you have to be working at the responsibility level of a second year general surgery resident, right? You have to be in the role of that R2, that resident level two, not just counting up months, but actually fulfilling a role. So this is all role-based. It's not about the numbers of months that you're you know, working at a low level. It's that your second year has to be at second year responsibility level. And um, so there's no easy way to get that, right? Because to work at it in R2 level of responsibility, that means you have to have a solid R1 level training. And that's not easy to come by. So, um, you know, the bottom line is that we're finding ourselves more and more, you know, paying more and more rent to general surgery. And, and we wouldn't be doing that otherwise. So uh, one thing I always love to point out is that all surgical training programs um, want their residents to work more in their field because there's more and more to know. Also, with duty hours, duty you know, restricted duty hours are limiting how many experiences that learners can have, right? So back in my day, you know, you could just work 120 hours for a year <laughs> and that was no problem. And we got the experience, but thankfully that's ended. And, um, and you know, there's a lot more oversight Payers scrutinize much more who did what work. And if attendings aren't involved at a high level, then oftentimes services aren't paid for by insurance companies or state paying agencies or whoever. So there's more and more financial pressures on organizations to make sure that the attending doctor does a lot of the work. Mm. Right. And so on many levels, the learner is getting cut out of being that autonomous surgeon in the OR, having those incredibly important experiences. Instead, you're kept a little bit more at arm's distance. I'm always there. I'm always hovering over you. I'm always scrubbed in. And um, this limits the amount of, of things you can do and the amount, you know, how, how quickly, again, how quickly you develop your internal model. So all surgical specialties uh, want their residents for longer. So take, for instance, orthopedic surgery. They said, man, you know, we're having a hard time training our residents to competency. Why are we sending our residents to general surgery for 12 months? You know, they really only need to be there for a shorter period of time. So they go to general surgery and say, hey, general surgery, you can only have our residents for four months. That gives eight months back to orthopedic surgery to devote to orthopedic surgery learning. Now, for orthopedic surgery, that's not a problem because their entire residency is accredited by ACGME. So they don't have any licensure worries. Mm-hmm. They don't, they're not worried about medical licensure, right? Their whole residency is accredited by ACGME. Now, I have the same concern as mm-hmm. orthopedic surgery. I would also like you to be spending more time on oral and maxillofacial surgery because I want you to be thoroughly competent by the time you leave. But I can't go to general surgery and say, hey, I want you to cut Marcus down to four months because that's all I can afford because then you would be unlicensable, right? In, in medicine, mm-hmm. you would be unlicensable um, in, in many states or you would be minimally licensable. And I'd be setting you up for a career where your medical degree would be with each passing year uh, less and less marketable um, uh, in the United States of America, which is a bad place to put a young person. You know, 
at my stage, I don't, you know, somebody took away my medical degree, probably wouldn't hurt me that much. You know, I'm fairly established in my career. I'm credentialed to have a long, you know, history with lots of experiences uh, and I can prove my abilities. But for somebody just starting out, you don't want to have a second degree or a second class credential, mm-hmm. right? You, you, want, you want that thing to be as portable and robust as it can be uh, for the duration of your career. I mean, it would be a tragedy if one day you woke up and you weren't a physician anymore, right? right. And that has happened. We have graduates of our program who have called me and said, hey, I want to get a license in New Jersey. And it's a two-year ACGME state. And I can only get, you know, I trained 12 years ago and I can only get credit for one year of ACGME. And I'm like, look, I'm sorry. And they're like, but if I move there, I'm, I'm going to be a single degree surgeon now. Like, That's right. I mean, there's nothing, I, I can't do anything about that. Mm-hmm. I can't go back and change the past. And uh, so that's a real example of things that are actually happening to people who are you know, in their 40s where they wake up and now they're a single degree surgeon because they moved to a new state. What if at that state, on the state level, they change the requirements or they give uh, an exception to the OMS? Because I know in California, I think they gave exceptions to OMS in, in terms of the three-year ACGME. Why can't we you know, do, do that? I mean, I guess we don't need to have... OMS surgical training months to be ACGME accredited, I guess, why can't we go to the state level and just get an exception for our specialty? Yeah. And I get asked that a lot. Like, what's the answer to this? You know, people always say, do we become a medical specialty? Well, in short, the short answer to that is no, Uh, we won't. Uh, There's absolutely no momentum or desire in our specialty to do that. People in our field uh, have rich careers that are greatly rewarding and nobody is going to change that mm-hmm. right by changing professions so one the will doesn't exist two even if the will existed we would have to first become a medical specialty and currently there's dozens of medical specialties waiting to be recognized as a medical specialty so mm-hmm. we'd have to get in line for i don't know how many years mm-hmm. just to even become a medical specialty and then develop, I mean, you know, and then we'd have to develop training guidelines and accreditation standards within ACGME. I mean, the road would be incredibly long. This is something that's so long and arduous. There would have to be an enormous amount of political will to make this happen, like existential worrying kind of political will. And I mean, OMSs are pretty happy where they are, right? <laughs> yeah. Nobody's rocking this boat yeah. uh, for this sort of unfor- this theoretical future set of clouds. So we're not going to become a medical specialty. So the the right answer is that we work where the problem lies, which is in licensing guidelines Mm -hmm. uh, of states. And I know this can be done because California did it, Mm -hmm. right? Um, California oral surgeons looked at California and said, oh my God, they're going to a requirement where California will require three years of ACGME training to get a license. Like there's no way we can do that. And um, so they went to their uh, their lawmakers and they presented their case and they went to the medical board and for CODA accredited OMS programs, if you are a graduate of a CODA accredited OMS program and you have one year of ACGME, you're, you're good to go. So that's great. That's really where we need to make the change, but we would have, we have to make it in 50 places. And, um, you know, in California, there are a number of training programs. So there was a number, there's, 
because there are a lot of double degree training programs there, there are a lot of double degree OMSs, which creates a great deal of political will and empathy for the problems of these learners. In other states, it's just not really seen as much of an issue. There's probably not, you know, as much uh, emphasis on this, but um, as uh, you know, but that's where that's where this problem is going to get solved. So, I mean, this then <clears throat> makes me think about the whole idea of an MD uh, OMS. Like, why go through all the trouble for a program to have an MD? And you know, is the MD still relevant to the current OMS? Yeah, it's a, it's still relevant is the short answer. Um, I love being a physician. Um, and, uh, I'll talk a little bit about why it's hard to answer that question in some ways, but if you look historically, I was, I'll talk about this many times when learners ask me, but you know, if you go back in time, 30, 20, 30 years ago, hospitals were, hospitals were run by doctors. And of course, doctors are very territorial creatures. Uh, we're very um, protective of people in our own specialty and we like to protect them. And, you know, um, oral surgeons, uh, you know, if we wanted to fix a zygoma fracture or a ethmoid fracture, um, you know, otolaryngologists and plastic surgeons ran hospitals or they sat in important positions and they said, well, you can't let those dirty dentists do that. You know, they need to stay inside the mouth. What are you thinking? And the only way we could rise above that kind of discrimination was to, uh, like Caesar's wife be beyond reproach, you know, and, uh, we had to, we had to meet their criticism, which is that we weren't physicians and we had to then dutifully become physicians. Now that then, you know, once we were physicians, those criticisms were neutralized and, uh, nobody could say that we couldn't, you know, expand our scope because we weren't physicians. Um, but in the meantime, healthcare also changed. And um, hospitals are no longer run by physicians. Hospitals are run by business students who wear suits. Um, they might have been physicians or trained as a physician, but they no longer are. And most of them aren't medically trained. But these people don't care about your territorial squabble. They don't care about, uh, you know, turf wars and facial trauma between specialties. Um, they run businesses. Those businesses are called hospitals and they want to employ providers that can solve problems for their customers. Their customers are called patients. And if you can do something like fix a zygoma fracture, then they really don't care what your professional background is. What they want to know is, are you trained to fix zygoma fractures? Because I run a business called a hospital where people, my customers have this problem called the zygoma fracture. And I need you to fix it. I don't really care if you're a physician or a dentist or both. What I care about is are you legally allowed to do this and do you have the skill set to do it? So once hospitals stopped being run by doctors who often competed with other doctors and started to be running by business professionals, um, there was less scrutiny over who had what degree. So I like to point out that I have lots of colleagues who have single degree, are single degree people who do the exact same scope of surgery that I do. Um, I love jaw surgery. I love maxillofacial surgery. I love uh, excuse me, uh, maxillofacial trauma surgery, jaw surgery. Those are my two biggest loves, which are both very hospital-based. And uh, But I definitely have friends who are, don't have a, a medical degree who their practice is indistinguishable from mine. And uh, places they're employed are happy to have them for their skill set. They're not physicians. However, 
I don't know what my life would have been like without being a physician. And I have no doubt that being part of that profession has, in a number of pastimes, opened doors for me. I don't know which doors were opened for me, right? Mm. I don't know which opportunities came my way or which advancements or, um, you know, how it modified the way I think about the world or what kind of problem solver I am or even how confident I am in situations um, uh, or people's willingness to allow me to join their group or be part of this board or sit on that executive committee or whatever. I don't know, right? I can't. I would love to be able to go back and split myself, you know, some quantum experiment and see where I'd end up, physician or not physician. Um, and so I, I can't quantify how much it matters to me. Although I do have to say that I do notice that it gives me a little bit of relief in not having to explain as much who I am. So one curse of being an oral maxillofacial surgeon is that we are cursed with the phenomenon of trying to out-doctor the doctors. Um, because we're, we're dentists, um, when, we are in the, when we are in the hospital, we know we are in a land of which we are not an original member. And we make up for that by being super earnest, very hardworking. Like, you know, how many residencies did you interview at that says, you know, the ED loves us? Because we always show up right away and take care of the work. You know, we're like Boxer the Horse from George Orwell's 1984 or uh, Animal Farm. Mm. You know, we show up early. We work until dusk. We get there before everybody else because, damn it, I'm going to show you I belong here. So we have this. And, and as a physician, there's a little bit less of the need to do that maybe psychologically or kind of prove who you are or go around explaining to people what you are and what you aren't and what your domain is and what your scope is and all that stuff. Like otolaryngologists don't go to the ER and like brag about how early they get there or, you know, what their scope is mm. or, you know, they just, they're not burdened with that. Right. And I want to be respectful to everybody, you know, but we are burdened a little bit with that, with that inferiority complex that we have as mm. a profession. And so having the double degree can lighten that psychological burden a little bit. And all the people who trained me and who I respect the most, I mean, every single one of them was a single degree surgeon and they were every bit as skilled as I am because being a surgeon, you're just, you're a problem solver, right? And, and I don't know, I can't really even remember medical school. I know I went, I have memories of it that are vague, yeah. but I can't, you know, plug my cer certain skill set now into like secrets that I learned that I couldn't have picked up anywhere other than the school of medicine. And, mm -hmm. uh, Medical school is these days, uh, for reasons I explained earlier, med if, med if, if, res if residents are having fewer and, and more shallow experiences because of the phenomena I described earlier, medical school students are really distanced from what they were before. As a medical student, I was allowed to do an amazing array of things when I was a med student in Louisville. Mm -hmm. You know, real thing, placing central lines and, you know, scrubbing in and actually operating when I was on surgery and and being left with uh, a lot of responsibility and uh, just in ways that just currently, this doesn't happen anymore, you know. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it used to be possible if a medical student wrote a note, you got paid for it. You know, the institution got paid for it and that changed. You yeah, know? currently. Started saying, no, you, you don't get paid if the medical student does the work. <laughs> so that means the medical student gets put on the sideline because the institution needs the revenue. 
So that's side. So it, it makes the pure experience of like the, the cash value that you come away with in medical school is a little bit less than it was in the past. And the tuition cost of it is higher. Now, the cash, the, the cash value of the degree or the credential in society hasn't gone away, right? But the actual knowledge, the actual modifying of your internal world of the person who went to med school versus the person who didn't is in large part a function of who that person is. Um, I mean, there's definitely ways to get the knowledge and insight without going to medical school. Um, and, and, uh, but I do know that our residents, uh, are visibly changed, uh, you know, in many ways from who they were and, and why wouldn't you be after being in some place for two years? Of course, you're going to be different, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not like you, uh, you know, went to a mountaintop and, you know, some tablets were handed to you or something. You just had experiences for two years. So of course you're going to be more knowledgeable about the health system and you're going to be more facile within the electronic record and you're going to understand how the health system works. And, you know, a lot of the things that befuddle people who come straight out of dental school and are suddenly plopped into this world and they don't know how the world works and, and you know, they never worked in a hospital. Before. Mm -hmm. um, and so there, there definitely is value to getting a medical degree, but the pure cash value of the actual knowledge that you have, I don't think that's the best reason to get it. Um, you know, uh, it's more the, the, the value that the credential, you know, in our society, credentials carry enormous value. We, mm. we fetishize degrees, right? College degrees are fetishized and degrees are everything. And knowledge without a degree is hard to get respect for in our society. Um, so, um, it definitely still has value. It seems like a lot of the benefits you lined, uh, outlined for the medical degree, it, it seems like it's more of a personal endeavor, like a personal growth type of thing. Like even with med school right now, I see that possibly none of these rotations may affect my clinical practice, but it does change me as a person. Now, when you see a lot of these graduates who go to you know six-year programs or four-year programs, a lot of them end up in prior practice where they're not interacting with the hospital system like they did in residency, regardless of four or six year. And so in that regard, wouldn't you say that the MD isn't helping them in prior practice setting? Yeah, it's, that, that's an area where it's hard to quantify exactly, you know, how much it changes, you know, them, um, you know, because you don't know what you don't know. You don't know what decisions they would have made differently. Or, hmm. You know, you can't quantify, you know, Maybe, you know, that medical degree meant nothing to how they're treating people, or maybe it's changed their outcomes in some way. Like, there's no way to know because mm. we can't run that trial where we split you up and, you know, that trial where we just split people up and, and randomly and, and see what they do later. And so much of what, where people end up is is a function of who they are before they come into the program. <laughs> I'm a firm believer of that. Like I can't really change people once they get here. And I don't know if becoming a physician changes you. It's hard baked. Like I see people, it's just like, they've got, they've got surgical success written all over them. And it doesn't matter which program they go to single double. They are going to succeed because they have an amazing communication skill set. They love building networks with people. They have aptitude for surgery and problem solving, and they're just going to kill it. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and, the degrees help, but they just have this native ability. And I see that in people. And, um, you know, if you don't have that, then all the degrees in the world aren't going to change your trajectory. 
So you, you're largely a function of who you are before you even start the process. Um, but yeah, I, you know, I think in a lot of ways, getting that medical degree is a lot like international travel. It's like you're, you're kind of getting to go to a foreign land and learn how people talk and live and it deepens you and enriches you in some ways, but you know, you're still coming back to the United States of America and you got to make a living here and you, you, you would argue, you know, your, your international travel definitely benefited you, but in ways you probably would have a hard time quantifying. Mm-hmm. And um, I feel like for our specialty, that's where I kind of put the medical degree where it doesn't give you a skill set required to mechanically do your job. You're, you're able to do your job without it. Um, you're, you're able to navigate anatomy and understand physiological processes and speak to other professionals, you know, without getting the second degree. You're, you're going to learn that in residency in a four-year program. Um, but, you know, somehow it modifies you and it's hard to quantify. That's why the, that's why the argument will never, we'll never know if it's needed or not. <laughs> if you had the power to change the, uh, if you had the power to change um, residencies being a four or six year, would you make MDs, go away or would you rather see all programs going to a four-year model because it seems like yes 30 years ago the md was relevant for us to stay grounded in the hospital to establish some kind of presence but now as you have said with the business uh, admin you know running the hospitals md doesn't seem to be that much of a benefit it seems to be in my opinion it, it seems like it's more of an academic interest it's purely just for academics um whether it's a personal academic interest or for the profession or for the university i don't see other benefits that uh would require us to stay as a six-year mm-hmm. you know profession and so if you had the power to choose i mean would you pick either or yeah it's like uh we're on a journey where we're forced to go on this arduous long distance like through the bush you know around town you know, getting these two degrees to get to our destination, right? And really what you want to do is say, we should build a tunnel under the town so we don't have to bushwhack out in the wilderness to get to the other side of town, right? You want to get to this destination. And currently we have this really ugly, kind of arduous, highly repetitive process to get to a destination you want to get to, which is to be, you know, uh, an oral maxillofacial surgeon. Uh, and it, one model I look at is is the like the DO model. So you know that used to be you know doctors of osteopathy. Um, you know they have found a way to integrate themselves such that they their graduates are able to enter surgical residencies. So they they were a separate profession, doctors of osteopathy. They're a separate physicianal physician sect that was able to make changes that allowed them, their graduates to compete, to, to qualify for entry into these residencies. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that would, I don't see dentistry doing that. You know, that's, again, that's a lot of work. I mean, DOs had a lot of existential pressure to do that. I mean, if they can't enter residencies, that really puts them in a hard spot. But most dentists, the vast majority of them, have no interest in working in a hospital, right? right? This is a fringe issue that the profession of dentistry just doesn't want any part of, right? They're not about to undertake massive, uh, deep, and meaningful changes to the curriculum and underpinnings of dental education in order to, you know, find and streamline uh, the access of a few 
Marners to mm-hmm. a different kind of, you know, residency. It's just not going to happen. Um, so, um, the, the, the path that I see that to get us to our destination, that's the least arduous is, is the one of, of modifying, you know, of, of, of doing the necessary politicking and arm twisting to get, uh, state licenses or state laws change that recognize CODA accredited training and OMS programs as in some ways equivalent to ACGME training. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, the ACGME doesn't want to leave us out. Medicine doesn't want to leave us out, right? This isn't, they're not making these changes with us in mind. In fact, they would look at us and say, oh, gee, it's a shame that, you know, this is happening. Like we don't, it's not our intent to disenfranchise mm-hmm. somebody who was a physician for 10 years ago and now they can't be a physician. It's not our intent, but you know, it's hard to enforce these state laws. They can't be flexible. They can't look at that, you know, double degree dentist and say, oh, for you, we're going to make an exception. But, you know, for this woman over here who is trained in a foreign land and only has one year, we, we're, we're not going to make an exception for her, right? Mm-hmm. States don't do that. They don't pick and choose favorites, especially when it comes to things like licenses. Mm-hmm. So you either qualify or you don't qualify. And that's why, like, you have to get the rules changed, which means you have to get laws passed. And then the state medical board will be happy to include us. If the law allows it, they'd be delighted to include us. I mean, every every profession wants more members in it. It strengthens that profession. It brings in more professional dues. It makes you more important. Um, and so every profession wants more members. Uh, and uh, um, but yeah, it's a it's a it's a tricky thing. Um, you know, people always also talk about splitting up our profession, you know, into like a, a British model. Where we That's have, how they do it in Europe, right? We have a different health system. You know, most of those countries have a national health system. So training is sort of a function of what jobs are available within a, uh, you know, a government sponsored health system. Hmm. And we don't like our medical training really isn't in any way connected with how many jobs are out there. There's no fixed number of jobs in our health system. Right. Um, nobody says, Hey, we need more oral max facial surgeons. Let's, let's bump it up. Um, and so the, our training system is slightly disconnected from our, the health delivery system or the healthcare system. And, uh, but in those countries, it's not. So it's easier to make fundamental changes in those countries and say, hey, we have a different labor need and we're going to modify training because we, we not only control training, but we also control the healthcare system. So when the training system is different from the healthcare system, like it is in the United States, there's not a close connection between those things. They're not run by one big organization that controls all of the, the dials and levers. If that was the case, yeah, you could say, oh, yeah, let's break it up. This seems like an unnecessary redundancy. Let's send some of these oral surgeons to school uh, to, to less training so that, you know, because they don't need all this, you know, this uh, other kind of training. And let's send this other set of people to more training because they have to do a different skill set or they have to fulfill different job roles. And uh, but we don't have any big organization making those changes. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's just never going to happen. I, I mean, I don't see any political will for that again. And, and most double degree people, I mean, they would, you know, they, they love the benefits that exist within traditional OMS practice. In fact, many of them rely on it to buttress their income, mm-hmm. to allow them to do the kinds of cases that might be less remunerative. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, so, but you know, there are some, there are some, some jobs where the medical degree really is very helpful, you know, like entering, 
uh, entering uh, into some training programs as an attendant. There aren't many jobs available there, so that's not much of an issue. But, you know, doing cosmetic surgery, I think it's a big, it's a big, the absence of a, a medical degree is more harmful sometimes than the presence of a medical degree is helpful. So if you're doing cosmetic surgery and you're a physician, I mean, great. That's what people expect, mm-hmm. right? You're just meeting expectations. Nobody's dazzled by your MD if you're doing cosmetic surgery. But the lack of an MD is noticeable. Right. So many times it's not about having the MD. It's about not not having the MD. <laughs> right. Yeah. And there's a difference yeah. there. Um, so that's why it's easy to argue that the MD doesn't help. It's true. But the absence of it can hurt. And there's there are some places where that's the truth, like, re, you know, oncologic surgery um, and cosmetic surgery. Um, it's not the having it that's important. It's the not not having it. That's mm. important. And there's a difference there. Do you feel like, I mean, it seems like the OMS community, either one doesn't want to talk about this issue or they don't feel strongly either way. It doesn't seem to be bothering anyone. And so I don't see this problem being fixed or changed as we go forward. But in, in that regard of the oncologic surgery, cosmic surgery, it seems like many of the OMS practitioners don't feel strongly about those either way either. I mean... A lot of OMS I've talked to, a lot of residents I've talked to don't care for us expanding our scope into oncologic surgery. Why not just leave that to ENT? Why not leave that to plastics? Yes, the MD helps with getting us into those areas and feeling more like we belong and, and that society can then you know say that we're qualified to do these surgeries. But most of our profession doesn't seem to care that yeah. I'm expanding into doing free flaps or that I'm going to be doing a bleph on, on a patient. Right. Yeah. Because, uh, there, uh, so in order to explain that, um, one has to understand something, uh, if you're a computer scientist, you'll, you'll know about this, but it's called the explore exploit algorithm, but this is also an algorithm that defines a lot of things in life. So explore, means that you are going about gathering information. You're learning. You're walking around in different jet directions. You're trying out different things. You're seeing how things work. You're exploring. You're learning. You're, um, and exploiting is a, a state where you have found something that works. Mm-hmm. You have gotten a skill. You've gotten a degree. You've gathered a skill set. You know where you want to work. And now you start exploiting that knowledge. You're no longer exploring for new knowledge. You're exploiting the knowledge that you have in order to to make a living, you know, in order to, you know, get resources or gather revenue or whatever it is you want to do. So computers understand that, uh, or in computer science and mathematics, people know that there's an algorithm for explore exploit. There's an optimal percentage of time that you should spend in any fixed duration of time exploring and then exploiting. Mm-hmm. And people think it's about a third. So, you know, let's say that you're, I don't know, looking for a, a spouse, you know, and you say, all right, I want to have a spouse within five, within six years. I'll pick mm-hmm. an even number. It's a little easier. Um, and you should ideally, you know, date for two years approximately, oh. maybe two and a half at the most. By then, you have probably seen um, a full panoply of examples of the kinds of people that are out there. And the next person you date that is above the mean, you should pick. Like statistically, like that's how you train a computer. The same thing is true of looking for a home, right? 
okay, I have three months to look for a home. All right, you should spend the first month looking, understanding what's out there, knowing and educating yourself about all the different you know vagaries of real estate in this city that I'm looking in. And then once you have that month under your belt, you pounce. And then you start making decisions, right? And so uh, the same thing is true, you know, in surgery. And once you, you know, you've spent so much time exploring and gathering knowledge, most people don't go back and start exploring again because exploiting is so splendorously, you know, um, people make, uh, people do well professionally. It's very satisfying. Uh, They provide well for their families, Mm -hmm. um, exploiting what they have. And so... They'll look at that and say, oh, well, you know, I certainly don't see any need to keep looking around. I've found something awesome. And, you know, why would you want to change that? Um, However, what we also know from looking at examples of other systems in nature and things is that if you don't change, you die. Right. Mm -hmm. So any business that doesn't modify, that doesn't grow, that doesn't gather new customers, that doesn't acquire new companies. Any business that stays static as far as what it does will eventually be eaten by somebody else. There's just no question about it, right? You cannot stay still. And if you look at oral and maxillofacial surgery, you can view it as a large system or even a business, right? Um, And that business has to constantly be exploring new territory Um, because not constantly, but a third of the time, a business should be looking for new things to do, right? A third of the time when Facebook serves you pages, it's giving you different kinds of pages to see how you respond to them, which right. which one keeps you there more and whatnot. But it can't always give you different pages. Sometimes it has to, you know, serve you up the pages that it knows works well mm-hmm. uh, in order to keep you clicking. Um, so if if somebody says we don't need to explore, I know that's wrong, right? We have to be developing Mm -hmm. new fields, going in new areas. We have to be pushing the boundary of what we do. Because if what we do, if we just keep it in traditional areas, well, then other domains are going to gather training and experience in those areas. And they're going to, you know, compete with us. And, you know, they're going to, you know, have friction on our territory. And we're going to find ourselves really unhappy that people are taking away our business. Mm -hmm. And, um, so if we, if we're not always modifying what we do, if we're not always exploring, I get it that people are making a great living right now. And yeah, it seems like, you know, but it would be a mistake to think that's always going to go on forever. Right. Yeah. The world will change and it's wonderful that it's great for OMSs now. It's wonderful, but you cannot assume that that will always be the place. So if you have people in your field who are pushing a boundary, who are moving knowledge in a certain direction, who are doing something different, who have an untraditional practice, that strongly strengthens your business. Again, if OMS is a business, having those people do those things makes your business more resilient Mm -hmm. to unforeseen things in the future. It is essential that people do stuff like that. Mm -hmm. We should be happy that people do stuff like that. We shouldn't be threatened by it. There's no reason in the world to be threatened by a certain small part of our profession that explores, you know, oncologic surgery or neck surgery or complex reconstruction or robotic surgery. That's great because it's absolutely essential that we're always some piece of our business is exploring. Mm. Have to be. 
because if we don't explore sooner or later, somebody will overtake us. And you know, that's terrible for our business. It's absolutely terrible. And that means we develop new techniques and things we already do. I mean, how has the removal of the third molar changed in 50 years? I mean, it's where we make all of our business, but why can't somebody else, a periodontist or a dentist or otolaryngologist, I mean, is there really anything about what we do that can't be understood by somebody and couldn't be grasped by them and done by them, right? If if they were sufficiently attracted to the revenue that lied there. I remember you said- We have to be innovating. It's essential. I remember you said, um, if what we define OMS is just the jump from the second molar to third molar, we're in great trouble. Yeah, I mean, if we just think that whoever's like happily working on the second molar is suddenly going to stop cold in their tracks because it's the third molar, well then, you know, that's that's wishful thinking. (laughs) Yeah. You know, but, you know, whoever is working on that second molar, they're not going to, you know, the the next day they might jump to the third molar, but they're not going to jump to doing, you know, a bilateral sagittal split. Mm -hmm. They're just, you know, nobody's going to do that. And uh, so... Uh, if you're making a great living exploiting your skill set right now, you should, mm-hmm. you know, but we should also be happy for the, the necessary exploration that is going on in, in other areas. And, and if somebody's doing, making a great living doing traditional, you know, dental alveolar surgery and uh, ambulatory anesthesia and whatnot, the fact that somebody else is doing something different is no threat to them. Like there's absolutely no reason to, care about Mm. that Mm. right i mean it doesn't but you know there's psychological reasons why people you know don't approve or whatnot you know sometimes we can feel like oh gosh if somebody's doing that then you know what does it say about but these are all just human problems you Mm. know these are this is the problem with human psychology right i mean we're all surgeons are all highly competitive people who are alpha many of them and you know we're very we're very, uh, you know, that's gotten us pretty far in our lives and it's hard to tone that down sometimes. And, you know, <laughs> yeah. My, so my we, girlfriend tells me that too. Yeah. Humans are very status oriented creatures. You yeah. know, we care. We, people say, Oh, you care about money. No, we care about status. Status <laughs> is we, we will, we will kill for status money. Yeah. Okay. Well, but status will do amazing things for status. Don't you feel yeah. like status game is a zero sum game? Status is a zero sum game. That's correct, because there there can only be one alpha yeah. or a finite number of alphas. Yeah. yeah, but business is not a zero. You know, knowledge is definitely not a zero sum game, and that's why we should be shooting for knowledge, not mm-hmm. status, right? Because it's inventions in surgery are limitless. Mm-hmm. I mean, hopefully, a hundred years from now, people look back at what we did, we're doing today, and just laugh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the way we laugh about you know people, you know bleeding patients yeah. as therapy yeah. you know yeah. or you know we, we maybe don't laugh but we you know we we pity those patients you know hopefully our future you know our descendants you know we educate people who do things that you know make you know that they actually pity our patients today mm. you know because that means we've made progress yeah explore and exploit yeah is that how you uh do everything all life? life is if you look at it like mm-hmm. i used to think you know yeah. oh, i was a teenager you know why are teenagers always trying new things and old people won't try new things well yeah. that's because of the explore exploit algorithm you know if you if you make the the, the duration of the human lifespan 250 years well that 80 year old is like well shoot i might as well go back to school right or i think i'll go live in paris yeah right they're yeah. not they're not just but 
if the lifespan is what it is, that 80 year old is saying, I'm going to go back to all my favorite restaurants and I'm just going to spend all of my time with my grandchildren because that's what I know I love. Mm. I'm not exploring anymore. It's just, I'm exploiting the things that I know I love to do. Cause there's too much risk with exploring more. That's correct. Yeah. Exploration yeah. is risk because you might find mm. something you don't like. You might go down to a path that's a dead end. So that's fine when you're young and you have lots of time to recover, right? Mm. Same thing goes for like an investment strategy, you know, you put more risky investment portfolio when you're younger, but when you get older, you got to explore, exploit. Mm-hmm. You can't explore. Yeah. Um, so it's a, it's a great, it's one of those great algorithms that you see everywhere in life once you know it. <laughs> it's an algorithm that you're talking about, but I don't think you live by it because I feel like you're still exploring. Yes, I'm. <laughs> uh, I'm definitely, and that's what gives me great pause. Like I'm, yeah. you know, 51, and I'm thinking, oh, I'm going to start a software company. Like, what am I doing? Like all the other people in this field are doing great, you know, and they've got they've got equity in their private practice. And, you know, I look at that and I have to say, like, I'm very, like, it makes me question what, what the hell it is that <laughs> I'm doing. But, uh, you know, um, it's, it's fun to keep mastering or trying to understand new areas and domains. And, and, and I'm comforted by the fact that obviously surgery needs people to work in machine learning and computer systems and, Clearly, there's going to be a lot of potential business there one day, mm-hmm. um, but the world of medicine changes slowly, and that's the hard thing. Saying, "Hey, I have a different way of assessing learners," or "I have a smart machine that can give you a great idea of how a learner is progressing through a curriculum by you know by these different methods we've developed." And you know, sometimes people look at that and they're like, eh, "You know, I don't know about that. I'm kind of happy with the way things are," and, but um, I think. You know, there's, I, as I'm getting older, I, you know, I am also aware of my body is changing and, you know, I can't be standing and doing surgery all day long anymore. It's not good for me. Um, but I have a lot of knowledge. So mm-hmm. I want to leverage that knowledge in a way that doesn't require me to see patients unit by unit. Mm-hmm. And the great thing about computers is that, you know, we're all waiting for the robot revolution, right? It's supposedly coming. Well, it's already here. And these robots are called server farms. And if you can learn to code and if you can write computer code and, and speak the language of computers, you can literally get billions of robots to do your bidding for you. And they'll do your bidding while you sleep. Mm-hmm. They'll do your bidding while you're riding your bike. They'll generate revenue for you. You know, so computers are like the, you know, the, the army or they're, they're like your, 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 you have dominion over your, your robot world of servants, you know, mm-hmm. but you have to be able to speak their language. And, it's uh, a different kind of leverage. I mean, in the yeah, past, leverage right, was, leverage you know, having employees. Um, leverage used to mean having businesses. Yeah. Now the new leverage I think we're going towards is having code, robot, AI that's working for you 24-7 when you're not necessarily working, yeah. which I think is a good future. Human leverage is not scalable. But, it's not, uh, yeah. But, you know, but computers are scalable. That's the thing. Yeah. yeah. I've been very interested in the idea of scalability lately. Yeah. yeah. yeah it's, it's also a good way to think about the world and kind of understand it is uh and that's you know i love being a surgeon because it's it's a profession where you don't have to explain to people what you are you know you're not the district manager of the you know of uh you know some incredibly inane you know business title or something like that you just say to people i'm I'm an oral surgeon or i'm a surgeon or whatever Mm -hmm. and people instantly know what you do and they give you the benefit of the doubt right you Mm -hmm. don't they assume 
certain qualities that you have and, you know, they give you a pass in a lot mm-hmm. of ways. So it's a nice thing to be able to say that you are because it's highly respected in our, in our society. Um, but there are certain drawbacks that I never saw when I was younger. And one of the drawbacks is that you can only practice your skill or craft within certain buildings. You know, you're highly tied to a certain physical location. Like for instance, I'm credentialed to do surgery at OHSU. And even if I wanted to, you know, do surgery at Legacy Hospital, you know, here down the street, well, I'm not credentialed there. I can't work there. Mm-hmm. Right. I, I can only do my craft. I can only, you know, do my job or make money in a certain building. Mm-hmm. And ma- doing that in another building, there's a high barrier to that. I have to go get credentialed there. I have to sign up. I have to get set up with insurance companies. It takes months, like six mm-hmm. months or so. So you don't do it. Right. So one of the problems of being a surgeon is that you can't do it remotely and you're tied to a certain place. Another problem is that you can't take breaks. Like what would extend my career greatly is to be able to say, you know what, I'd like to just take three months off. You know, I have plenty of money. Mm. Um, Why can't I just take a break for three months, recharge, do some traveling, take advantage of all the hard work that I've done, and then come back and be refreshed, be excited about my job again. You know, be ha- happier to interact with patients and kind of put up with all the BS that can happen sometimes mm. and not, you know, have a longer fuse, you know. Why can't you Be- take some time off? Yeah, you can't because your your part, surgeons are highly tied to their patients. So um, patients expect they have a relationship with you and they expect you to do their work, right? Um, we don't, it's not like being an ER physician where if I did a, a shift one night, and then the patient came back the next night and I wasn't on call. That ER physician wouldn't say, oh, well, you're Dr. Wong's patient. You know, mm-hmm. um, you know you're not my patient. The, you know, mm-hmm. the patients move seamlessly between doctors. The same is even true in fields like OBGYN where, you know, because people can go into labor at any time, OBs are much less like, they, you know, the, the patient doesn't expect all the time to see their own, you know, OB. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, there are other fields like, you know, radiology, for instance, you know, nobody says, oh, well, that's my interventional radiologist, you know, I have to go. So, but they do say that's my surgeon and, um, they don't like being passed around to other surgeons and, um, you make your living as a surgeon by being available and being present. And when you're not present, you know, people start to look elsewhere. Um, also, you know, for oral surgeons in particular, you, you live and die by, you know, just being there to solve people's problems. And, you know, (laughs) there's a lot of competition in oral surgery and people are afraid, you know, if I leave for three months, all of my referring people are going to find somebody else to love Mm -hmm. and they're going to forget all about me. Right. So we're all terrified of taking an extended period of time off. Plus, if you run and own a business, you can't turn off the fixed costs of running that business. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't say to your employees, well, you know, we're going to, you know, while Dr. Engelstead goes and travels for three months, we're going to let, you know, 10%, we're going to let 15% of you go because uh, the other four doctors don't need as much staff. And mm-hmm. so you get the business of it starts to, once you turn on the business and say to society, I'm open, I'm here, I'm a surgeon. Unlike other fields, you can't really turn off that sign without great consequence. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, even if I leave for a few weeks, I'm totally aware of the burden that I put on my colleagues who are <laughs> going to have to see my patients might misinterpret something. You know, they might see an outcome that I know is, you know, it, 
yeah, I know that patient. Don't worry about it. He's fine. But, you know, a new doctor sees that patient and says, oh, gosh, I'm worried about this. You know, they don't understand the patient like I do. There's a, surgery is a very, you know, we, we think of it as doing surgery, but it's a very long-term thing. You do an operation, but you're observing somebody for months and months and, and you're watching the trajectory of their recovery. And, you know, you, you, you just can't hand that off to somebody else because they don't know the history of that patient. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I mean, you can, obviously we can all leave on vacation, but, um, it's, um, it's just really challenging. So that's, you know, being tied to a place, not being able to take breaks. Um, I think if we could, we would last a lot longer, mm-hmm. you know, but so many of us just work and work and work and work until we retire, you know, and we haven't really stopped. And the same thing is true of dentistry in general. I mean, you know, Dentists are tied to businesses, even orthodontists, you know, they can't really leave either, you know. So um, it's just one of those things that you you think about when you get older. But, you know, I think you're doing the right thing by surfing on the weekends and mountain biking. Yeah, I try to, you know, you know, it's important to stay physically in shape. You know, I remember I did a, like you said, I did a a little, it wasn't really a fellowship. It was more like a, I visited uh, in Switzerland and spent some time, several months with surgeons watching them operate. Um, but I remember this one surgeon and he was very physically fit and, uh, you know, he, he took great pains to explain to me why surgery was incredibly hard on your body Mm. and why, if you don't take care of it, I mean, you're, you're going to have trouble, a lot of trouble as you get older. And for young people, they don't worry about it. They're so worried about learning how to operate. They don't think about the machine. Um, and when I say the machine, I mean the body, their own body, but if you can't operate, if you've got a neck or back problem. Well, I mean, what are you going to do? Like how are your kids going to go to college and, you know, who's going to pay the bills? And, you know, it's like, you're like a, you know, if a trucker doesn't put oil in his, you know, in his, uh, big rig, well then he's out of business, right? I mean, if his machines go down, he doesn't get any, he doesn't make any, you know, revenue. Mm-hmm. And the same thing is true about surgery. If you can't stand there and operate, well, then you can't provide for your family. And um, people don't think about that. You know, they think, oh, there's going to be lots of warning signs. And, you know, yeah, gee, you know, I'll I'll just keep an eye on it. But if things get too bad, I'll change my habits. But by then it's too late. Like if you wake up one day with neck pain, forget it. I mean, that surgical, that surgical, that cervical disc, (laughs) it's already bulging and hitting, you know, against C6, you know, and, and, uh, and you already have that arm pain and it's too late. Like, so by the time you develop symptoms, it's too late to fix them. So you have to just see your body as like, it's like a tool or an instrument. And, um, because the longer you can keep it working, then, you know, the better you can provide for yourself and enjoy surgery. Yeah. And as we talk in your living room here, you have a home gym set up. I mean, I have a home gym at home and, um, I'm just trying to stay fit as you, I mean, uh, thanks a lot for just being on the show, Dr. Ingles. We're kind of coming up on that hour. Um, you know, one last question, I guess, as we close. What would you tell the new learners that are pursuing OMS? We just finished, uh, you know, residency interviews. I missed this COVID pandemic, which was a very odd experience. But what would you tell these new learners that are coming in and who might be listening to the show um, when they're considering a six versus four-year program? The one thing I didn't hit on is uh, a couple things is try to find, try to find, if, if, there's no, you have to just look inside your heart and decide whether or not you want to do a, to get a medical degree because all the planning in the world, you know, might prove to be 
you know, all, all the predictions that you make right now might prove to be untrue. So in the end, you sort of just have to ask yourself that deep question on the inside of, you know, do I really want to do this? Um, and uh, there's nobody's ever going to be able to answer that question except for you, mm. you know. Um, and I know I would love, I, I'm the kind of person I would love to just ask 10 people. Like, I want them to tell me, yeah. right? Tell me what to do. Everyone's frustrated. But nobody will tell you, yeah. right? You have to answer it for yourself. But if you are going to do it, then remember the valuable thing that you get is the credential, right? You want the MD. Mm. And so, and of course you want the knowledge that comes with it, but mostly you want the credential, right? Therefore, if you can find a program where the medical, where the time you spend as a medical student should be as brief as possible, Mm. because every month that you're a medical student is a month that you are not a surgery resident, Mm. right? There's just no other formula. Mm. So spend as few months as a medical student as possible. I don't know of anybody where that's too short. You know, I don't think there's a danger of spending too few months as a medical student. Um, so try to spend as few months as possible as a medical student, because that gives you more months as a, as an oral surgeon, as a surgeon, and then try to spend as little money as possible. So find programs that, you know, where tuition is low or they don't charge tuition or they have uh, scholarships that pay for tuition because your debt, the amount of financial debt that you're under debt is the future calling and saying, I've already made plans for you. Debt is a lack of freedom in the future. So if you don't have a lot of financial debt, that allows you to treat all more kinds of patients, including doing the kinds of surgeries that might be more interesting, maybe, or, you know, quote unquote larger, but maybe don't compensate as well. So the lack of debt gives you more freedom. And that's why it's important not to have too much financial obligations, you know, too many, too much debt when you leave. And that's the great irony of the MD is everybody goes into it and says, I want an MD. I'll ask learners why, why do you want this? And they'll say some version of, well, I want to do an expanded scope or blah, you know, something like that is usually what they say. But the irony is that they spend the years doing it, but the debt that they have when they get out has more influence on their decision making that than the, you know, the MD did, mm. you know, and they're more influenced by their debt as far as what kind of practice they have than they are by the presence of the second degree. Mm. So it's incredibly ironic sometimes wow. is that you go to great lengths to get this thing that actually limits your options rather than expanding them. Right. Yeah. So just, I'm, I'm just counseling people, just think about it. Right. And be honest with yourself. A lot of people, this is a very emotional thing. Like when I bring this up, people who have, you know, uh, uh, an MD say, well, that's nonsense. And they get very emotional about it because nobody wants to spend two years and say, oh God, that was a waste of time. Right. And there's all kinds of psychological studies that show that the more that the more that a person pays for something, the more value they will see in it. So if you charge a lot for something, people will hold that thing, even though it's intrinsic value might be nothing. If you charge somebody a lot for it, or they paid for it dearly, uh, or suffered for it, they will hold that thing. They will they will attribute a lot of value to that thing, even though its intrinsic value is low. The same thing is true of medical school, right? If you paid in two years of your life and you know two hundred thousand dollars, well, you're never going to wake up one day and say, "Well, geez, I was that actually didn't have a benefit," mm-hmm. right? So you have to be wary of that when you ask people, "Hey, was it worth it?" And think, okay, who are you asking here, right? Yeah, yeah. What 
where are they coming from when they give you the answer? Because not many people are going to say, oh, yeah, well, you know, I did the analysis and actually, you know, I, I'm not sure it really benefited me. And so just be aware of who you're talking to and what they might be thinking and the fact that they're humans with the same, you know, psychological foibles that we all have. And and that it's just an, it's just a question you're going to have to answer for yourself. Wow. You know, that's uh, that's a great way to end this um, episode. Basically, the answer is still very unknown. It is. And it is. I mean, you ask any four-year oral surgeon, they'll tell you, don't get the MD. You ask a six-year oral surgeon, they'll say, get the MD. So that's right. I guess we're still at that uh, uh, place where we don't know what we're doing. And yeah, and that's still why. still very confused. And that's a great thing is to know that you're going to be happy no matter what, right? And that's why you don't have to worry about it too much. If you, just, if you can get it, just get it as fast as, and cheap as you can. Because what you really want isn't that. You want the stuff that comes after it. Yeah. Right? That's what you want. Right? People pay you for your surgical knowledge, your surgical know-how, and your surgical experiences. They don't, you know, they don't pay you for being a physician. That's not what they're valuing in you. They're valuing in you that you know how to move a maxilla forward or, you know, do a coronal flap or repair an orbital floor or remove a deeply impacted third molar with a cyst around it. They want your experiences because, again, those experiences have given you the model of the world that allows you to make good, effective, and correct decisions. Um, and uh, that's what they're after. They're not after the degree. They're after the experiences. Hmm. Well, Thank you so much for um, spending this time with me. Uh, where can listeners kind of find you? I mean, well, I'm sure there's many questions people I might want to ask. I sort of issue uh, social media. Uh, and so no Twitter, no Instagram. But definitely feel free to email me, uh, markinglestead at gmail. And I'll put my some personal the footnotes and yeah. everything. And, yeah, Mark Inglestead. That's M-A-R-K-E-N-G-E-L-S-T-A-D at gmail. That's probably the best way. Okay. Email. All right. Well, Dr. Engelstead, thank you for your time. And we'll have to get another episode. Thanks, just, Marcus. This was a great conversation. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks.